um, it's helping people um, adapt to a climate that's not changing, that has changed, so that we can we can make sure it doesn't change any further. You're listening to Seeking Refuge, a podcast sharing the human stories of refugees. Your host for this week is Claire Mattis, and our guests for this week are Grace Adcox and Amali Tower. Grace is a graduate of Vanderbilt University and a researcher with a focus on refugee and immigration studies. Amali Tower is the founder and executive director of Climate Refugees, who has been working to promote the protection of refugees for over 15 years. Before we get into these interviews, we're going to give you a little background on the issue of climate change and refugees. Climate change is a growing problem throughout the world that is beginning to cause large populations to flee their homes and seek asylum elsewhere. A quote from the UNHCR states that hazards resulting from the increasing intensity and frequency of extreme weather events, such as abnormally heavy rainfall, prolonged droughts, desertification, environmental deregulation, or sea level rise and cyclones are already causing an average of more than 20 million people to leave their homes and move to other areas in their countries each year. As for the internal displacements, there were 24.2 million new displacements by disasters in 2016. As in previous years, South and East Asia were the regions most affected. While China, India, and the Philippines have the highest absolute numbers, small island states suffer disproportionately once population size is taken into account. This problem is only growing, and many believe that world leaders are not doing enough. Nearly 1,900 disasters triggered 24.9 million new displacements across 140 countries and territories since 2019. This is the highest figure recorded since 2012 and three times the number of displacements caused by conflict and violence. However, talking about climate change and how it affects displaced people can be difficult because the term climate refugee is not endorsed by the UNHCR, and it is more accurate to refer to persons displaced in the context of disasters and climate change. I completed my undergraduate degree in political science and Asian studies at Vanderbilt last spring. And now I'm currently a graduate student in the master's program of political science at Vandy. And I study human rights, I study immigration um, and refugees, of course. And more broadly, I'm really interested in conflict. So that's kind of where my interests lie and a little bit of how I got into studying this area. Could you just tell us what you think the most accurate definition of a climate refugee is or how one should go about defining that? Sure. I think that that's like a, a pretty difficult topic to approach. And that's largely because there haven't been many concerted efforts among people who are practitioners of international law to define that term. And I think that that's because the phenomenon is a little bit newer, which of course is an issue in itself. But I think that the best way that you can kind of start to formulate that definition is to work with the existing framework put out by the UN High Commissioner for Refugees that defines refugees on the basis of their experiencing persecution and reasonable fear of persecution at home for their membership in, in one of five categories. And you know, some people might be familiar with religion, but you can also be persecuted on the base of membership in a social group or, or your political affiliation. And so to kind of expand this definition to climate refugees, I argue, and many other scholars do argue this, although it's not, you know, quite written down yet, that we should be considering persecution on the basis of, of your experience with 
some sort of climate disaster or, or lack of access to resources on the basis of climate change. So whether that's a lack of access to fresh potable water or a lack of access to food sources that are reliable and consistent, or if you have been displaced because of some sort of natural disaster like a hurricane or an earthquake, those are all potential reasons for someone to become a climate refugee. And like I said, it's really difficult to come up with a consistent definition for this until we have more people who are practitioners and who write these definitions to kind of promulgate that across the wide range of people that are studying and are interested in policy surrounding immigration and climate refugees. Thank you. I know it's a really heavily debated topic, so it's good to have consensus of what a definition could be. So in your article, you mentioned the 1951 convention relating to the status of refugees. Could you explain the effect that has on why we can't define a climate refugee right now or what that has on just the topic in general? Yeah, absolutely. So the original convention, which was made by the United Nations, originally responded to the refugee crisis that was initiated by World War II. Initially, the convention really limited the scope of who could be considered a refugee to Europeans who had to flee on the basis of, you know, the war. And that is obviously going to restrict the the population that you're talking about. And so the expansion to this convention took away this like geographical and time range restriction in order to identify, okay, Refugees are these people who are facing a consistent fear of persecution on the basis of these five categories. And these are the protections afforded to them. And namely, I would say the most important protection is non refoulement, which is a French word that basically means you can't be returned to a place where you are going to be persecuted. It's an obligation for member states of the United Nations to ensure that they're not returning people to places where they could experience immense violence and persecution and even death if they were forced to return. So that's really where the basis of our understanding of what a refugee is has come from. But as times have changed since 1945, the end of World War II, there have obviously been huge international events that have led us to kind of reevaluate this definition and think about ways we could substantially expand it. So more recent court cases, like in the United States, for example, addressing people coming from Central America have considered uh, people who've experienced domestic violence or people who've experienced gang violence as potentially being refugees, even though those don't fall neatly into the original five categories of protected refugee status. Similarly, climate refugees are, are one of those expanding categories where there's not a lot of precedent in international law to talk about them as refugees, but the experiences they have and the protections that they need really mirror what those original refugees look like. Thank you. You answered like two of my questions in that. I was also, when reading your article, noticed you were talking about language used when talking about climate refugees. And I wanted to know, how does language or rhetoric use affect the way we discuss climate refugees and affect the way people think about what a climate refugee is? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that language is almost everything at at this day and age. It's important to consider language because we have to know like who falls under what category and who receives the protections that are afforded by a specific definition. So for example, if I were to come to a border of some sovereign state and say, I am a climate refugee, that's not going to be accepted and taken, you know, at, at my word, but instead there's going to be this debate that goes on. I'll probably go through an immigration court experience 
years of a wait list or face deportation or have to stay in a camp on the border until my case is heard. And a lot of that is because we need to have an expansion on the definitions that we use for identifying refugees. And part of that is also because most people who aren't directly involved in, in the lives of refugees, immigrants, migrants, asylum seekers, don't really know the differences between them. You would be hard pressed to look at an American television news network and find them consistently using the word refugee when they're talking about a population that is a refugee population. Instead, they'll probably reference migrants or immigrants. While that in itself is not inherently bad, it, it does mean that we don't have a clear understanding of the differences between these groups, the differences in the protections afforded to them, and in terms of how we create policy surrounding these groups, policy practitioners don't often have a clear picture in mind of, of the groups that they're talking about when they use terms like this. And I think on another note, language is especially important when we think about how refugee populations are discussed. So something that came up a lot when the Mediterranean refugee crisis first became international news was the use of the terms like flow or wave or sea of migrants or flows of refugees. And language like that, that depersonalizes and dehumanizes a group of people who are experiencing some sort of violent conflict or who have been persecuted on the basis of their beliefs. When we use language like that, we necessarily are moving away from an understanding of refugees as people just like us that have experienced something that's horribly traumatic and tragic. And instead, we, we view them as something that's like a mass, that's, that's amorphous, that's not really human. And that can also change public opinion. It can change how we approach policy. It can change how we discuss these groups. And so that's another area where I think language is especially important to consider when talking about refugees. Do you think the criteria for being considered a refugee is outdated? And what do you think people should do to update those criteria? Like, what conversations should we be having about that? Yeah, absolutely. I think that the nature of law is something that seems really static and, and set in stone, but it shouldn't be. It should be something that evolves as we evolve, as, as our societies change, as the challenges that we face change over time. And like I said with the court case earlier about people who had experienced gang violence or domestic violence making claims as asylum seekers as potential refugees, I think it's really important that we start considering alternative definitions of why someone might experience persecution. And I think that climate persecution is just as valid as religious persecution as a reason for someone to seek refuge in a different country than the one that they came from. And so in order to, to move forward on that, I think that it's really important to put pressure on policymakers, especially on policymakers that, that have this influence on the international stage to make this a priority when they meet at things like conferences for, for climate policy or at conferences for human rights. And furthermore, to take that from this international stage back to the domestic stage and change the policies that we develop in response to refugees and to immigrants at the border so that it's it's much more up to date for that purpose. In your article, you said refugees are mobilizing to plan for climate change in different areas. You said Norfolk and New Zealand. Could you tell us more about that and what that consists of? Yeah, so 
Climate change is something that I don't feel that qualified to speak about as, as not coming from, from a scientific background, but from the perspective of someone that is just like a casual reader of science and, and climate news, it seems that there's going to be a really wide variation in how people experience climate change. For some areas, that'll mean increased floods. For others, it'll mean increased droughts. And, and it'll also mean massive storms, it'll mean earthquakes, and, and some areas are going to face the effects much sooner than others. So people are responding in very different ways to climate refugees that would be spurred by this. I believe the Norfolk example that I referenced was in reference to some increase in ocean tides leading to displacement of people living domestically in the United States. And I think it's important to recognize that this is going to be something that happens all over the world. Norfolk, Virginia may be responding to people who no longer have space like at the seashore to have their houses. But if you look instead at how New Zealand is responding to climate change, New Zealand is a, is a large country that's an island state, but small island developing states in the Pacific and in the Caribbean are going to face in very near years that they will experience a lack of fresh water because of increasing ocean tides as well as the salinization of their freshwater sources on the islands since they're quite small. There are already some small islands in Micronesia, for example, that are no longer suitable for any sort of agricultural practice because of the lack of space and fresh water to, to sustain those practices. And so these people are entirely dependent upon other islands or other states to give them those resources and it's becoming more and more difficult to imagine those sustainable practices. So we're starting to see some responses like in New Zealand where uh, humanitarian visas are being issued in order to allow people who are residents of small island developing states to resettle their lives, develop some sort of satellite community basically of refugees who've left their their old homes and and sort of approximate the the culture and societal loss that would happen if they'd just been forced to flee everywhere across the world. So there are different ways of responding to climate refugees and I think that it's going to have to be entirely context dependent what policies will work for which populations. And especially, I think it's important to center the voices of the people that are experiencing climate crises themselves. Like I said, those are going to happen at different times for different areas around the world, and they're going to happen in different ways for different people. And it's important to like seek out those people and understand what they want in terms of an equitable, fair solution to the, the crises they're facing. Um, and especially for people that will never be able to return how they want to establish themselves in a new place forever. Since, especially with small island developing states, there's not likely to be a return home. What do you think the U.S. government specifically should be doing to, I guess, prepare for climate migration? What should they be doing to either prepare or combat that? It's a good question. I know that the U.S. government is really interested in, in studying and learning more about climate migration. And even the, the recently appointed head of the armed services has suggested that this is going to be one of his priorities. But to me, I'm, I'm concerned that the U.S. government is much more focused on maintaining their resource consumption and, and preventing the outbreak of conflict rather than thinking about equitable, safe ways to resettle people who are going to lose access to their homes and their communities. So I think that more focus needs to go toward developing these sorts of 
responsive tools in order to promote the safe resettlement of climate refugees, rather than thinking instead about, well, how do we stop the water wars? How do we make sure that we're able to access enough natural gas when that's contributing to climate change? So to me, I'm seeing a very self-centered sort of motivation by, by the government to respond and instead try to maintain a status quo of resource consumption that is undoubtedly contributing to climate change, rather than centering sort of the people that are directly experiencing it, even the people that are already in the United States and experiencing the effects of climate change. So that's really, I think, where we need to push the government to go. So at the end of your article, you listed a few books and links about this topic. So what resources do you recommend students use to get information about climate refugees? Do you have any books worth suggesting, anything like that? Yeah, I think that because this is such a a new area and we haven't really started even identifying people as climate refugees until the last decade, that there's some really interesting new work that's worth pursuing. I enjoyed Jeff Goodell's book, The Water Will Come, which he's he's a journalist. And so his perspective is not that from, you know, a scientist or, or from politician or or an activist, but rather someone that's just done a lot of research and talked to a lot of people. And so you get a very direct view from his perspective and from the perspective of ordinary people that have experienced climate change and experts of what will happen if we don't make a a strong response to climate change and, and the potentiality of vast numbers of climate refugees that can number into the hundreds of millions within the next 50 years. Um, that I think is an excellent book and it's very readable. Beyond that, I also think that Naomi Klein, who is an excellent writer, uh, has, has written some great books that are tangentially related to this subject. Further though, I would suggest that anyone that wants to learn more should be looking directly to the source at the United Nations High Commission for Refugees. While they may not explicitly define climate refugees as part of their understanding of who refugees are, they are doing lots of work to understand what's the pressing need for this population. How should we be responding to climate refugees, climate migrants that are that are emerging in droves and in many different places around the world? So I think that that's another good place to, to look. Beyond that, I think that It's really important just to educate yourself on local organizations that are working with refugees because I think that increasingly we'll start to find that climate refugees are are just as prevalent among the immigrants and refugees in in our own communities as any other kind of refugee. So it really, I think, is because it's such an emergent area, I'm expecting a lot more will come out in the next couple of years. But as of now, we're still kind of limited in our understanding and approaches to studying this phenomenon. That was my interview with Grace Adcox. And now we'll transition to my conversation with Amali Tower. So my name is Amali Tower. I'm the founder and executive director of Climate Refugees. Um, and we are a nonprofit um, organization that is uh, a human rights organization um, working on the uh, to advance the protection and rights of climate displaced populations, um, populations that are forced across borders as a result of um, the impacts of climate change are currently not eligible for international protection, um, and so there are definite legal gaps, protection gaps um, that, that could exist. Um, 
most populations that are impacted by climate change um, are impacted, uh, or rather are impacted or displaced or migrate internally. But um, again, that does not necessarily mean that they have, uh, you know, less, any less protection needs. Um, So it's really, uh, fundamentally, we're a human rights organization that's really trying to sort of flesh out the complexities of migration, um, because there's, there's really a lot of, um, there are a lot of gaps in, in understanding there. Um, and, and also um, trying to, uh, we, our work is to highlight the um, inherent sort of injustice at the root of it all. Um, you know, you're talking about a situation in which um, most of the populations that are forcibly moved as a result of the impacts of climate change um, have, you know, generated or contributed, uh, you know, so very little to global warming. Um, And at the same time have um, uh, gained very little from the economic gains that, um, you know, that that the industrial revolution and 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 all the sort of uh, you know burning of fossil fuels and all the things that have gone into creating industries that have uh, supported such you know wealth and prosperity in many parts of the world have not necessarily translated. So there's there's just a lot of ways to like unpack the the complexity of not just my, of of movement, but then also the complexity of that injustice. Um, yeah. Is, is something that is, is very difficult and complicated to talk about, but you can do it by looking at sort of bite-sized pieces of, by looking at it through the human lens. Yeah. So that's essentially what we're trying to do. That is awesome. Um, I guess my first question would be, how would you go about defining who qualifies as a climate refugee? Because I know it's not, there's no official definition. Um, yeah. Um, well, I, that, yeah, that, that's, a, that's a pretty hard. It's uh, a loaded question. So. It's a loaded question, yeah. So first of all, I think it's important to think about it in terms of um, it's, it's not a, um, a definitional issue as much as it is an, an understanding of um, the failure to protect I think is where the real uh, sort of legal gap exists. And, and by that, I don't mean technically, I, I mean in terms of the way we process, think and approach what is very certainly, you know, an emerging concern, let's say for lack of a better word. You know, when you think about the fact that um, this displacement dynamics today are not necessarily um, the same as the system that we've established. Um, You know, the world has changed, the climate has changed. And so displacement dynamics, you know, don't necessarily match the changed climate is is how I like to sort of bookend that conversation. So when it comes to your question about a, a, a definition, here's how it stands technically. Um, we've gone from, say, from, from an understanding that's very much, well, the 1951 Refugee Convention defines somebody who um, has crossed 
their border, uh, crossed a border, left mm-hmm. their country that is, and crossed into another country, um, and has on the on the basis of a well-founded fear of persecution, uh, you know, on the basis of race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or membership in a s- particular social group, mm-hmm. and really nowhere in there is a, anything sort of very akin to climate change. Um, However, uh, we've come along uh, progressively quite quickly in in that last year in October, UNHCR um, released a legal paper uh, or rather legal considerations, I believe is is how you'd call it. That that essentially fleshes out a a more, a broader understanding that, that, that they had before, but but now is very technical and specific to say that in certain contexts, um, people could meet the uh, definition or the threshold of, have, of meeting protection under that uh, refugee definition. And why? Well, because it's not necessarily the event or the issue that sort of, you know, impacted them to move. So, Two ways that that could really happen is climate change impacts can have a disproportionate, you know, impact on certain populations who may not have access, you know, um, to the like certain remedies, like whether it's a disaster or whether it's slow onset impacts, right? Because they're marginalized already or they're an oppressed sort of population. um, They may not have the the access and the means and you know so that 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 is a just form of discrimination so by doing that that violates their rights and so that could be a basis under which they're protected protected um and then the other also being that you know um obviously climate change can have these impacts that um uh, threaten and uh, exacerbate uh, underlying conditions, the social disruptions that we, I think we all know uh, can occur. So broadly speaking, you know, without going into all the nitty gritty of those considerations, um, there are those scenarios under which people can um, certainly find protection under the legal instruments as they stand now. Uh, the other ways in which that can happen are regional instruments that have long existed, like the 1984 Cartagena Declaration in Latin America and uh, the 1969 uh, Organization of African Unity Convention has a wider definition um, of refugees uh, to include those who flee conditions that, quote, disturb the public order. Um, so when we founded, when I, when I founded the organization, you know, these were certain principles in my mind, that being going back to what I said about it's, it's more important to think about the protection needs of people rather than the legal um, definitions necessarily. Um, certainly Latin America and certainly, you know, the African continent recognized that people might move for reasons that don't fall under these the, the strictest definition of the convention because, you know, things that disturb the public order, although not defined, can be understood, right, as like um, a lot of the internal dynamics in a country, you know, that that may not necessarily like become a full-fledged war, but might uh, 
you know, certainly might like sort of uh, diminish the rights the, of, of certain people, right? Like if you're marginalized or you're, you're, you're a minority group, you know, um, e- events can happen that, that, that sort of like, you know, he- heighten those, uh, those, uh, those violations really. So um, climate change can certainly fall into that category, right? And then there, there have also been countries who have, um, um, supplementary definitions like environmental disasters in their definitions. So it's, this is not unprecedented, you know, that uh, such a thing can exist. And right now, to while we while while that's all we really have, um, the real thing to consider is is human rights law, you know, and how much that has played a role in certain individual cases um, over the last you know, year or two that has, I think, significantly will, will play a role in, in sort of illustrating what we need to do on a broader level. Um, and that is essentially to say that, look, anything that sort of like forms, anything that is uh, a threat to, to, to someone's life, you know, the right to life. And that, I mean, that, that is a fundamental right, uh, right, you know, the right to life is it is on its own a fundamental right, but there's also the right to water. There's the right to food. There's the right to, you know, health. Um, the, these things are also diminished or being threatened, if you will, by climate change. And so this is what I'm talking about in terms of we have to recognize that this isn't like this um, sort of zero-sum game, climate change movement. No, mm-hmm. people are being impacted in ways that, climate change might very slowly over time weaken and threaten all of like many of these rights. And as it threatens and weakens many of these rights, it might eventually have forced people into situations where they don't have any other options yeah. but to move internally or to, you know, to their cities or maybe across borders. Or it might create conflicts and crises. So... Mm. I know that's a that's a very like not an answer to your question, and and I'm trying to express to your listeners um, that it's very important that we not seek nice, neat answers. It's far more important that we understand the complexity of how climate change is impacting human beings. Yeah. Um, most importantly, human beings that are already living on the margins. Um, and are not in our countries, you know, who had very little to do with creating uh, the situation to begin with. It's, it's fundamentally a justice issue. Yeah, no, that's yeah. a great answer. Thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, on that same topic, so considering that, you know, climate refugee is not a term supported by international law, um, did that create obstacles when you were founding the, you know, climate refugee organization? Is Was that difficult legally to, um, I guess, you know, to found that organization based off that? Um, no, not at all. Uh, because I mean, I don't, uh, technically speaking, you know, I mean, there's not, there's nothing to like, um, inhibit your, your right really mm-hmm. to call your, your organization, whatever it is you want. D- did it though, broadly speaking, uh, create a barrier, um, for people who are, that I have to work with, um, who are reticent, you know, 
to use this term? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely it did. Um, I have had situations where um, I, I think people, I mean, I, yeah, I've had situations where people want to work with me, but have actually asked me if I would consider not working under the name. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very serious thing. Um, that did not change my, my goal. Um, but here we are. Uh, let me put it to you this way. It is now six years since I founded this organization. And even with that, with those challenges, um, just last month at the UN, um, I heard at least four countries use the term climate refugees. Four countries, one of them in France. Um, you know, so, uh, and, and even more importantly, uh, the alliance, um, one, one particular country who was representing the alliance um, of small island states now in the, in, in the in international, you know, diplomacy, um, the Pacific island states have been the, the strongest advocates uh, screaming out for, you know, climate action for decades. And, uh, you know, we, we've sort of not been really moving as fast as maybe they've been sort of signaling <laughs> the need. Um, and there's been a lot of conversation about the fact that, you know, they don't, they don't identify um, with wanting with climate refugees in this term. And I've always said, well, you know, actually, if you read their whole statement, it's not that they don't identify with the term. They're saying all these following preventative actions should happen so that we're, we don't have to become climate refugees. That's actually was the statement. If you really look at it. Um, secondly, um, that aside, my question that I would say uh, I, I would I would recommend people to look at is how how little progress possibly has been made that then those those island states as an alliance um, used the term climate mm -hmm. refugee just last month um, when uh, just a few years ago the conversation was they don't actually like that term please don't you know we shouldn't be using it. But now as an entire alliance at the, at the, at the most vocal and strongest you know, uh, forum at the UN, they, they use the term. So I think it's very indicative of, um, you know, the, the urgency of the situation and yeah. the fact that this isn't going away, right? Our, our failure to act is going to force people um, into situations that they don't want to they shouldn't have to be in. Yeah. Yeah. That is, thank you. Yeah, that is a great answer. Um, my next question is more directed towards your specific organization. Oh, my next few questions. But um, mostly I want to know what inspired you to start your organization in the first place. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Well, I... Um, I've, I've worked for a very long time with refugees and internally displaced populations and not just, just displacement in general. And um, in the context of doing that, I've, of course, interviewed many, many, many refugees. Um, I've never kept track, but, you know, hundreds and hundreds, uh, you know, probably a lot more than that. But anyway, um, 
in the context of doing that, I've interviewed refugees in, in different settings, different scenario, different countries. And that would mean then that it's people who have, you know, fled different conflicts or situations. Mm. Um, <clears throat> and even, you know, even, even with that ver- variety, I heard um, multiple instances in which where people would speak about their livelihood loss um, or the impacts of crop failures, like successive crop failures. And, you know, as someone who was working um, under the refugee framework, that was just, that was just like, okay, well, so those are your difficulties. And that was your story is how I was thinking about it as they were speaking. Um, It certainly wasn't to me um, the, the, the reason you need protection, right? Because, well, that's not covered. Um, <laughs> but of course you're, you're singularly focused and you have a job at hand. And so you're, you're, that, that's all you sort of think about. It took many years later. Uh, well, when I un- unpacked that, I realized, oh my gosh, you know, it was right there in front of me, all these people talking about essentially climate change. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was that process of, of like reflection that made me recognize that um, there's certainly a problem on the horizon. Um, it's it's kind of sort of being talked about. Um, it's mainly being uh, protected in terms of display, uh, sorry, disasters, because that's something that's easier to communicate and it's easier to sort of deal with. And we have frameworks for disaster risk reduction and mm-hmm. things like this. Um, but the slow onset effects and you know, and by slow onset effects, I'm talking about drought and decertification, you know, the rainfall variability, um, uh, these kind of things where so much of the world lives off the land. Um, climate change is not an environmental issue. Climate change is an economic issue. Climate change is a social and political issue. Um, climate change feels like persecution. And that really... Once, once, I, once I saw that, uh, purely by just unpacking and, re- and reflecting on so many stories I'd heard, um, that became the impetus. And, and that's why I founded the organization. It's just really that simple. It's just reflecting on what I heard. It's not anything that I, I discovered on my own, you know? Yeah. People told me what, what was happening. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was on, I was on your website, you know, looking and reading, um, through the mission statement and things like that. And, um, I saw it talking about field reports and Mm -hmm. I guess my question is, could you describe how field reports are conducted, um, and what they've shown in regards to climate caused displacement, like recently? So feel there are different ways, you know, I think field reports are conducted. I mean, I suppose it depends on the organization and the methodology that, you know, they, um, they, they, they stipulate uh, a right up front, but um, for, for my purposes um, or like maybe in this, in this type of work, you know, because climate change is such a difficult thing to unpack in terms of, um, identifying it as a, as like a push factor that, that by that, I mean, like that pushes people to have to move. Um, 
it's 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 not an easy thing to you know identify like true target uh, and to then to disentangle from all the other variables that are ongoing at the same time. Um, so you know, and in that sense, um, when people are moving in general for like for forced reasons, um, like like refugees, for example, it's it can be very clear to understand, right, that they're they're moving because of um, of war, of conflict, because well, we all know that there's a war. Um, however, what the general, like maybe public or people who are not like practitioners, like talking to the actual refugees year in and year out, uh, maybe don't know. And even the people who are like me take for granted is that while people were forced to move because of that, because of that war and like whatever atrocities that sort of like were happening, um, they still always communicate the hardships of life. They talk about, well, and this impacted my life this way and that way. And because people like to tell their stories, they've just gone through unspeakable things, you know, and it's their opportunity to speak about it. And I've never not heard people discuss, you know, so many other things that they will, they're in their testimony, they're telling you to kind of like, we're all part of the, impetus to like just go that gets where, where you're like uh, your um, your desperation and your protection is getting diminished more and more and more and more you know it that happens over time it's not it's not unnatural for people to have to be displaced multiple times mm-hmm. generally internally um, and then they cross a border because again their protection is again impeded by being in by being within the country and then they eventually flee across borders so what i'm saying to you is is this is not some like it's not it's not as clean as one might believe it's not like horrible things happened i fled um it just doesn't work that way most of the time people uh will will tell you i oh my god they i they attacked my village so many times and then you'll say to them well how many times? I don't know. It's, it's countless for them. And you're sitting there going, why wouldn't you have left? So why now? Why did you leave now? And that becomes an interesting story in itself. And by hearing the answer, you hear all the things I mentioned. Now, when it comes to climate change, though, you hear it's, it's very similar, right? There may be not. The only thing that's missing is there's no war or conflict, possibly. Yeah. But people will still talk about it in the same way. They'll talk about multiple years of crop failures. And so all the things that they did to mitigate that, how did they survive? How did they adapt? Blah, blah, blah. Um, And again, the question still will remain, well, why now? What what happened now? What, what was, what, what threatened you to, you know, or made you so vulnerable now? Um, so that's what I mean by it's very hard to identify, you know, that one specific target and then to disentangle it from all the other elements because it's just generally how this works, whether you're a refugee or, you know, from conflict or whether you're someone who's, who's fleeing something that we don't really have, we don't have the same protection framework for. So when you do a field report, you are, 
cognizant of that reality. And you're not trying to go around and lead people, you know, um, in, in questions um, that, that get, you know, it, well, you're just not leading, you're not asking leading questions. You're trying to ask questions, I mean, as at least I am, that demonstrate everything I just said to you, you know. Mm-hmm. How, how do you do that? Well, a lot of ways you do that, you know, and obviously there's, that's a whole school of thought one can research and read. Um, but that's what field reports are for, for me. And that's talking to the impacted populations. Mm-hmm. Uh, but with it also comes talking to all the experts that you'll see I, I might speak to at, because I, I have a very interdisciplinary approach. I don't believe that climate change is an environmental issue that science is only going to solve. Science informs us, you know, science informs us this is happening, but in terms of how it impacts our, our world, you have to understand um, that you have to approach this from so many various disciplines, you know, from an economic dimension, a social, a cultural, a political, um, in order to actually have you know, an idea of solutions. Yeah. So that to me is, is a field report and how uh, I approach it. Thank you. Um, I guess my next question would be, so I, you know, you mentioned you'd worked for years before founding the organization um, with refugees. What specifically was your job back then? Um, what different things did you do? Um, yeah, it's, I worked for um, various NGOs and I've worked for the UN Refugee Agency um, and um, I've worked for um, organizations that were uh, working within the U.S. Refugee Admissions Program. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's all been like, you know, um, uh, protecting the rights and uh, you know, um, of, of refugees um, in, in all the various sort of like elements um, of people who are displaced, you know. Um, so how resettlement works is um, UNHCR, um, well, most countries will, will have agreements where they take a certain amount of people that they will resettle that UNHCR identifies as in need of um durable solutions, one of them being resettlement. They, there are sort of three durable solutions pursued. Uh, resettlement is one that is usually identified for populations um, who have been um, displaced for more than five years. So when you do that, the, that you have to recognize how many multi-millions of people are refugees. So you have to go through a sort of like a protection analysis of who really is the most vulnerable, most in need. Um, so that there's a whole bunch of work that happens in that space. Mm-hmm. So that, that's what I was engaged in, um, you know, at various levels. But, you know, I've done other things as well um, in areas of like conflict risk analysis, you know, working with multilateral organizations, um, all of which are informative to this work. That's really impressive. Um, I guess my next question would be, um, so what do you suggest the international community can do to, I guess, provide 
more help to the community of climate refugees? You know, what um, specific policies should be passed, I guess, or any, anything like that? Um, what can the international community do to help climate refugees? Okay. Well, I think the first thing the international community can do better is to help people not to have to forcibly might be displaced. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody wants to leave their home. You know, um, I think that might be something that um, maybe a lot of like Western and rich nations in Europe and the United States, Canada, what have you, like what I'd, what I'd classify as the global north don't maybe understand is that, you know, people aren't, aren't in desperate need to like leave their homes and come to so-called greener pastures in, uh, in the global north. Because that's how the global north acts, right? They were, they have this very securitized border responses and keep everybody out kind of approach. And so I have to assume that they assume everyone wants to come here um, out of sheer uh, choice <laughs> um, because they want something better. Um, yeah, that might be an element. Um, that might be a wish or hope, but uh, they're not they're not unaware that most countries don't have very welcoming policies. There aren't a lot of options for immigration, right? For most people in the global South. Um, Why do I bring up these dynamics of global North and South? Well, because most of the displacement that's happening is in the global South. It's happening to countries that had very little um, contribution to global warming. but are paying a, a very heavy price right now um, in many, many ways, one of them being forced movements. Um, so it, it's, it's important that then countries recognize that that's not the issue. It's not keeping people out. It's helping people stay, mm-hmm. you know? Um, it's helping people um, adapt to a climate that's not changing, that has changed. So that we can we can make sure it doesn't change any further. So lower your emissions, um, stick to your commitments, provide finance and funding. Yeah, um, that's 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 by far the biggest and, and most urgent thing that people can do. Uh, the international community can do, um, and then recognizing that not everybody will uh, will will be like will will be protected. Not everyone's needs will be met by just those actions. You know, there will still be people who have to move uh, because the impacts, it's too late. They're already being felt. Um, and so we need to have, um, you know, safe, accessible, uh, not just like welcoming, um, open um, borders and pathways where, where the people aren't forced to be smuggled and trafficked and cross oceans or deserts and risk their lives and die um, while we continue to keep borders closed, you know? That those two things need to happen and they also need to be recognized in terms of um, why people are moving rather than um, the assumptive reasons, which I think are why 
we probably make so little progress. That was Amali Tower talking to us about her experience with climate refugees. If you liked this episode, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us in the comments below. If you'd like to get in touch with us, email us at seekingrefugepodcast at gmail.com. Follow us at Refugee Podcast on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook for all updates on our show. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you in the next one.